Uh, I hope that you may leave here today feeling that you learned something. And I pray that what I have to share today may bless you uh, somehow. Um, what I'm going to share with you today, this morning, is uh, three pieces of three pieces of work I've been working uh, tied together. So my invitation for you today is to join me in a train of thought. The train of thought that is composed by three parts, written the title today, that reads the moral vision of Ephesians and catechism for the church. Obviously, I'm not speaking here only by myself. There is uh, some people I rely on and who helped me to get where I am today. And hopefully, with your help, I can move forward a little bit in what we've been working. So to give the proper um, honor to who deserve it, I'm building largely on Ian Sproven's uh, lectures and a group of students' uh, work on a seminar called Ethics of the Old Testament, for the first part, talking about moral vision. Also on a, a teaching of Dr. Uh, Joshua Coots on Advanced Exegesis class for Ephesians, which I hope I will not do him a disfavor mention of Ephesians here, and largely to work with Reverend Alan Tan in developing a teaching project, a Christian education project, uh, for our local church, the Church of Good Shepherd, um, into which I got in to study a little bit of Christian catechesis. Last time I was here with you, I talked about a little bit about building blocks. So today, I will work not much different than last time. So we're going to take three different building blocks and hope that we have a beautiful wall, at least, by the end of this morning uh, teaching. The first building block is this of moral vision, right? So, although it may seem obvious, I do not like to assume that thinking about moral vision is an obvious uh, thing to do. Um, thinking about moral vision passes through largely a big question that Teenagers ask themselves, young adults ask themselves, uh, middle-aged adults ask themselves, and I found out recently that elderly people also think about quite often, that is, what I am to do with my life. That is a very specific question, if you think about it, of a larger question. The question, what are we to do? What are we to do? What are we to do? It's a, it's a big question. It's a question that we tell, talk about is a moral question. And these kind of questions, what am I to do with my life, or the general question, what are we to do in general, is the kind of question that's so important that People have been thinking about it for many, many years. Um, Christians are no different than other people, so we also think about it for many, many years. But uh, I'd like to engage first, not specifically with what Christians think about what should we do, 
But what uh, people in general in history have taught about what are we to do? And how, more importantly, do we answer this question? What are we to do? Um, in human, human history, there is largely three approaches to this question. And as I see it, they are mutually excluded. That is, if you choose one way to seek the answer for the question, what are we to do? You cannot choose a second one whenever it is convenient to you if you want to be consistent with yourself. The first one is to look into nature. Looking into nature to find the answer to the question, what are we to do? It's found in many traits of human thought. Epicureans claimed, Stoics claim that, um, Buddhists and Taoism claim that, and even nature scientificism claim that. When I'm talking about nature here, I'm not talking about the, the smaller concept of nature as the scientific vision of nature. When I'm talking about nature, it's like the, the embedded reality in which we live, right? The embedded reality of how the order of the cosmos is about to be. All these lines of thought, like Taoism, Buddhism, uh, Stoicism, to say, uh, uh, and scientific and Western scientificism, see the cosmos, whichever version of the cosmos they have, as the source into which we should look to find the answer to the question, what are we to do? And if we observe the nature of the cosmos, and we observe it well enough, it will be obvious to us, or at least uh, clear enough to us, what are we supposed to do with that in our lives, in everything in our lives, even to the specific question, what am I to do with my own life? A second large approach on the question, what are we to do, is the will. Uh, modern scientists like Sto uh, Hobbes, Machiavelli, Karl Marx believe that we find what we ought to do in the will. The will here is actually a, a larger concept as well, but it's basically an inherent reality of the human being. You can define the proper will through the gathering of people, right? Like the democratic theorists talk about what is good. Good is that what the democratic people join the will decide what is good. Or you can take a more uh, Leviathan approach in which the state, how powerful as it is, determine, uh, establishes what is right and what is wrong and the will of the state is what is good. And last but not least, the third approach or, of how to answer the question, what are we to do, it's found in the transcendent. Which is basically to say that we are to find the source to the question, what are we to do, the source for the answers, not on the cosmos as it is established, and not on ourselves as it is established, but on something else, a transcendent, that is both outside us 
and both outside the cosmos. Uh, monotheist religions like Christianism and Islamism claim this kind of view, but also Platonism claims this view. For example, Platon believes that the world of ideas, a transcendent of both reality and humanity, is the source of all good, and we should look for that good to see what are we to do. But why did I invited you to this very brief and very, uh, not necessarily very precise evaluation of the sources for the questions, what are we to do? Well, mostly because I find that nowadays, and maybe this is not just nowadays and has been here for many years, humanity, Christians or not Christians, have a hard time uh, being coherent in their this moral decision or the source of moral decision. If you look nowadays for how people do things, uh, and at least on how I see it, people claim at any given time any one of these three sources as why they do what they do. At the same time, they would say that I act like this or like that because this is my nature to do so. Or we should do this or make this decision because this is what the law says, which is expression of the will. Or any given point, they may say that there is some transcendent force or power or intelligence that told them to do A, B, or C. And we Christians are uh, no necessarily better than any human, and we are on the danger ourselves to be idiosyncratic in claiming any of this, any of the time, to justify what our moral decisions is. Just to clarify something really quick, because I haven't defined it before. By moral decisions, I mean any decisions we make trying to establish what we did, what we off to do, what is our duty or what is the right thing. Not just moral in the sense of what is perfectly good, and perfectly evil. Some visions of morality would even say that perfectly good or perfect evil does not exist. We ourselves, however, uh, gathering this room, at least I feel assured to say most of us gather in this room, claim to be Christians believing in one living God, creator of heaven and earth, who revealed himself to us through Jesus Christ, his son, and sent us his spirit. And as believers in God, we claim to believe in a transcendent force, one who is outside the created world and outside ourselves, who established to us what we ought to do. Both in the particular, what I am to do in my life, and in the general, what are we to do in general. So this whole talk I want to develop to you is to remind us that although there are many options out there, although society around us will push us in any of these three directions at any given time, we as Christians have the moral duty to remember that 
We believe in one God, Almighty Creator of heaven and earth. And as so, we have only one source of a moral vision for us. That is, God himself and his revealed will in Jesus Christ and through scriptures. Why is that so important? Well, I hope by the end of the talk, you, 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 we can gather to get to that. Why is that so important? But thinking about this takes me then to the second part of these three pieces uh, development. That is the text of Ephesians. Uh, we take a text like Ephesians to be scripture. And as scripture, we mean that it's part of God's special revelation to us. And we as Christians believe that through the reading of scriptures and prayer and, and gathering like this, we can know the will of God for us. So I'd like to read with you some small portions of Ephesians uh, and then join what we have in Ephesians to what we have in thinking about moral vision in general. Of course, if I would be uh, follow my professor's teaching, Joshua Kutz, in, in how to do that, I would, and I would love to read all Ephesians with you and go through everything Ephesians has to say to us about moral vision and catechesis. However, uh, we only have 50 minutes, not 50 weeks, to go through everything that we we could and we should in Ephesians. But I'd like to invite you to some uh, very short pieces and then comment a little bit on Ephesians itself. First one is chapter 1, verse 15 to 23, where it reads in the ESV version, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remember you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us, who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in the right hand in the heavenly places, for above, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come, and he put all things under his feet and gave him a, uh, gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And then he addressed the, read, the, the listeners. As for you, you are dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once are following the course of this word. And verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with uh, which he loved us, even when we were dead, in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you are saved. And of course, chapter 4, verse 1, 
I therefore, a prisoner in the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you have called it to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all in all. But grace is given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore I say, therefore it says, when he ascended on height, he let host the captives, and he gave gifts to the men. And say he ascended, what does it mean but that he have descended into the lower breeze of the earth? And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints to work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. To mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, Rather speaking the truth in love, we rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part's working properly, makes the body grow, so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you for bearing me through the long reading. But these passages are really important to what I'd like to bring as reflection for us today. Um, Ephesians is a Pauline text, which means to say that it's at least written in a Pauline fashion and spirit and claims to be Pauline. It has a very beautiful vision of the church and of what God has made to us. In terms of what kind of moral vision it casts for the church, it's, it's an amazing text. It takes uh, uh, three time frames. It talks about the past, focusing mostly on what God did in Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ in us, which I read really quickly. It then focuses on the present, talking about what are we to do facing the reality of what God did to us and in us, in Christ. And finish its text, presenting for the future. Um, interestingly, not so much in a very scatological future like we have in other texts, but in the future as we live here as a one community of faith. From now on, it's the last part of the text. Being powered in the power of God. Uh, it's very interesting, however, to, to think about when you talk about moral vision. What, what, what Ephesians is saying to us. What, what the writer is, is presenting to us. Because he is meddling a path. It's walking through the path. That's one of the fascinating paths of Christianity for me. That is... The amazing paradox, one of the amazing paradox of Christianity in which perfection or 
holy life, if you prefer, is both granted to us in Christ and demanded from us. It's both expected and unattainable. If you read the text, you, you note that he says that we are alive in Christ. We are seated in the heavenly places with Christ. Just as Christ is exalted above all name and of all ruler, all rules, we are with him co-heirs of God and of the kingdom. And right after that, he comes and says, if you steal, don't steal anymore. If you lie, stop lying. Please have your households in order. Don't abuse your child. Don't abuse your uh, slaves. It's that kind of amazing paradox in which we as Christians are at the same time expect to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. But also know that we are sinners and still have to get rid of the old man and be clothed with the, of the new man. <clears throat> Basically, the moral vision of Ephesians as it cast before us Follow the following logic. God acted with his mighty power in Christ. He resurrected Christ from the dead. He put Christ as the head above all. And then he took us who were dead. Not and put us resurrected in Christ. But he made another very amazing thing in that. He not only took those who were close, and that by meaning uh, those who already knew God through the Old Testament covenant and through the law, but also those who were far away, which to a larger extent are all us here. Those who not by uh, inheritance are sons of Abraham, but by faith are sons of Abraham. And he took these two people, those who were far and those who were who were close, and announced peace for both, and brought them together. And the text says that there was a division, an enmity, a, a, a fight between these two groups. And Christ himself destroyed this enmity in the cross, and made these two people one body, one community. And he took this one community and put out there for the powers and potestates and principalities of the earth as a testimony against them of the wisdom and of the power of God. This is, this is an amazing vision about what we are as church. We, as we gather here, and our brothers and sisters all over the globe, we are testimony against the powers, principalities, and potestates of the wisdom of God. And then he comes the urge. Because God take us from death to life. Because God has made us one people. Do two things. I urge you. Live in a way worthy of your calling. And do every effort. To keep the unity. Of the church. Because we have to live a holy and worthy life of our calling. 
because of the so great work of God, of what God did in our lives. That's a, a duty and a gratitude act towards the loving God who saved us, even when we are dead, even when we're, we are enemies. But we also have to be working together as one body, one spirit, one God and Father who is above all and through all and in all. Because it's only when we are in this unity, when, only when we are one body, that we are this testimony <coughs> to the whole world, to the whole principalities and potestates of the wisdom of God, of bringing together two different people. And not only two different people, but if you, if you take the, the vision of Ephesians, Ephesians, of Revelations quite clear, all people of all language, all tribe, as one single people, as one single body. Of course, Ephesians is a very great book of moral because he does not only talk about these grand things, he then goes to the nitty-gritty aspects. As I mentioned before, do not steal. Talk true with each other. Be humble with each other. Uh, have your household in order. But I, I do not want to go there uh, today on the specifics of what we have in Ephesians. But I want to take Ephesians as a testimony for us that not only we believe that the source of what we ought to do or how we know what we ought to do comes from a transcendent source that's outside the world and outside ourselves, which are God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. But also that what he wants us to do is both knowable and known. It's not out there for us to say who will go up and bring it down to us. It's not far away for us to say who will go across the sea and bring it to us. But it's close to us. And the reality that we believe in this God, and the reality that God made known his will to us, not only in the major aspects of our lives, like be one church, but to the very nitty-gritty aspects of what are we to do about our family, what are we to do about our friends, how do I decide uh, how to take care of my uh, neighborhood or of my uh, garden or how I am to raise my child or how I am to, to decide which kinds of food should I eat. <coughs> to be very, very bold in my claim. The way we are to live, what are we to do, is known to us. And because of that, I understand and I want to propose to you that is our moral duty as people who claim to believe in one God, to dedicate our lives to know what is the will of the one we claim to believe into. It's our moral duty to dedicate our lives to understand better each day, to know more each day, to grow in knowledge each day. Which is Thankfully enough, something that we are 
in a certain way doing today. Right? We're here gathered exactly for that purpose. But I'd like to invite you to consider that it's not our duty only to know it in a very individual and particular way, but it's also our duty to teach it and to pass it forward in a very consistent, in a very clear, and in a very um, broad way, in the best of our capacities, with the help of our God, who is the one who equips us and works through us. What takes me to the third part of the building blocks? Catechesis. Um, I want to work with the concept of catechesis, not in the, in the more structured sense of the term as it came to be, as catechism, as a, a, a sequence of questions and answers developed to teach the, the, the base of faith um, or a, a, a core doctrine uh, of the basics of the Christian faith or but I'd like to, to talk about catechesis in a, in a broader sense of the term, uh, and more specifically to the act of catechizing someone, in the sense of the old term of the practice of teaching someone about the truths of faith, about the truths of, uh, of what God wants us to know, about what God has revealed through the scriptures, and more importantly, through Christ. I've been engaged for the past couple of months in, in trying to develop a teaching uh, a program, to say so, for our church, for our English congregation or church. And I'm passionate about teaching the scriptures for many years, and, and it's fascinated to me uh, over time two, two things. First is how hard it seems sometimes to get people interested in what the Bible has to say inside the church. Not talking about people outside the church. Sometimes people outside the church are more interested in what the Bible has to say than people inside the church, which is even more fascinating. Um, but how hard it is to... to, to Bring people inside the church to be interested in what the Bible has to say. Especially when it comes about the Old Testament. Uh, it's fascinating as well how hard it is to, to take something that we sometimes assume as granted as known. And make it systematic to present to people. If you think about it. The catechism we have today is basically a major effort through the centuries to do that. That question and answer process, the kind of questions and answers that are there, is exactly a major effort of many men and women of God trying to take what we believe and make it as clear as possible for the generations and generations after and after. And every adaptation since is a effort to... to, to uh, do that better and better. Well, and, and what I'm doing is trying to join them in these many years of effort and hopefully contribute somehow. But this, is, this strikes me as very curious. 
if God, if we believe that God make his, his teaching our speakers that is knowable, if it is not far away for us to ask who is going to go there and bring us to us, why is it sometimes so hard for us to, to uh, do it, to teach it? Which is what brings me to this whole conversation this morning. As I'm recently thinking about this, this is not a, a finalized talk yet. But there are at least two propositions I'd like to make about why is it hard to make catechism. And then two propositions maybe about how maybe we should make an effort to do catechism in the church. First is that it seems to me that most Christians I know lost uh, the faith in the capacity of God's revelation to tell us what are we to do. We seem, uh, as far as I, uh, my experience goes, and by the end, please, I'd like to hear your experience, that we feel that Jesus Christ and the Bible are not enough to tell us what are we to do about many of the challenges of the world. Whether on the grand order level, for example, what are the Bible has to say about euthanasia, gender, and, and political participation, it seems that we have lost our, our capacity to trust that God has provided enough for us for life. And we then reach forward for other sources. Let me make something clear here. I am a scientist as background. I have a mechanical engineering degree. I love interdisciplinarity. I love science as a, as a, as a thing itself. I think it's an amazing thing, a gift of God. I'm not against using human capacity and knowledge for many developments. But I don't think we should ever trust human capacity and knowledge over God's revelation in any given time. But it seems to me, if not the past generations, at least my generation, seems to have lost, to a certain degree, the confidence that the transcendental is the source where to look for about what are we to do. And because of that, to a given extent, that's the second thing. We are to, we have reached a point in which the teachings of what the Bible say about what are we to do became a, a second Secondary project of the church. Most churches I know, and I have grown up from a, I'm from a Pentecostal background, then I moved to evangelical background, now I'm in an Anglican church, which is a very sacramental background, historically. And even those who are very, very uh, passionate about teaching the Bible, and I have seen these in the three in the three groups. For nowadays, it seems that that this confidence is shaken. 
I don't know exactly why yet. That might be some more sociological development that's beyond my grip. I'm, I'm never still in the crack gay, so uh, sociology is something that it's too too weird for me to 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 be on my mind to to wrap my mind around it. Fascinating as it is, but. I'd like to invite you to consider two things that Ephesians present before us. First, that we are to remember what God did in our lives and through our lives, and, and, and in your lives and in Christ. And remembering that and the confidence of that, we are to Seek earnestly, vividly, every day to know what is the will of God for us. And I want to make an important note here, given that we are Westerners in culture at least, if not by origin. Western world has made a terrible thing in making us too individual, to ourselves too uh, uh, detached from the other people. The Bible rarely talks directly to individual people, especially in, in New Testament letters. When I talk we, I talk we as a community. When it's you here, every time you see you in Ephesians, it's you in the plural, referring to the whole group of people. And then I talk here, we, I not mention we as this group here gathered for the Learners Exchange. I want to say, together with the writer of Ephesians, we, as the whole people of God, the whole people who have been restored in God, the whole people who is actually just one body, we have this uh, moral duty to remember what God did. And remember that we are one body. And built on this confidence of what God did, we are to live our lives. That is what the second part of Ephesians is all about. How to live our lives built on this confidence. <clears throat> and talking specifically about teaching, I think we are, we off to teach the generations after us. And if the generations behind us lack this, even the generations behind us as much as we can, about what is the revealed will of God. There is an imagery, imagery in the Old Testament that I love when God talks about his law for the people. That he says, <clears throat> I haven't took the reference previously, but he says, teach these things, talk about these things, remember these things. When you stand up, as you lay down, as you walk down the roads, teach this to the, your kids and the kids after your kids and the generations after generations about that. It's amazing. Uh, my mother, many years ago, made a study about the importance of memory in the Old Testament. I know that other people also have done that. And it's amazing how much God treasures that we remember what he did because it's very easy to forget 
it's very easy for us to, to, to now taking Craig's gaze proposition, it's very easy to live as if God didn't matter. It's very easy to decide what are we to do as if God has never revealed himself in Jesus Christ. It's very tempting to us to decide what we have to do, whether in the big things in life and the small things in life, as if we were never raised with Jesus Christ, as if we were never sitting in the heavenly places with him, as if we were never became one body, as if we are not a testimony to the powers and potesties and principalities of the air, of the wisdom of God. This is a temptation we face every day. And tell you what, I've been working with many uh, uh, faithful Christians of my generation. And it's amazing how sometimes even those who are, I, I have known who, who are, if I, allow me to use the word, the best among us, the ones who dedicate most of our time studying the Bible and, and teaching and evangelizing, how lost sometimes we are about what we are to, we ought to do. Even those who grew up with a good Bible teaching, even those who have been faithful to the church, even those who, who dedicate time to prayer. And I am afraid that if my generation, my peers have this challenge, other generations also might have this challenge. I haven't took time to sit with previous generations to ask how it is to them. I... I only can know a little bit about the generations after me, whom I help in the church, the youth, the young adults. They seem even more lost than my generation is. Um, but consider that. We as people of God, because of God, what God did, and I know that I'm repeating myself here right now, have this moral duty to teach, to pass on what God have done and what we have to do regarding that. And I mean that not only on the usual vision of catechism, of the very basics of faith. There is a, a text in Hebrews 6 that fascinates me when the author says that I wanted to talk with you. It's actually starting chapter 5 about important things, about great things, about deep things, but you still need milk, not salty food. And I cannot give you salty food because you are still infants in the faith, which also Ephesians taught us we should grow to not be infants anymore. But let's not put again the foundation about everything we already know, the foundations of faith, of the baptisms, of the laying of hands, of forgiveness of sins. And it always struck me. Because. I've been trying to catch up with. And leave the milk for many years. And in all the three traditions. I have, I have walked through. And even with studying a master's degree. I still have no idea about the, the doctrine of laying of hands. And this guy. Writing Hebrews just say. This is just the basics of the basics. And I wonder, have we lost some of the base of the base over the years? And we should go back many years to catch up and say, okay, let's gather that and take milk and leave the milk and actually get solid food. Finally, 
just to finalize my thoughts, uh, I'd like to bring forward again and claim with you again the importance of the unity of the church. If we are to grow, if we are to be this testimony, we have to be have this unity that Ephesians talk about, which is a God act of God, not our duty. Our duty is only to zeal to and work toward this unity. Um, and my impression is that proper teaching of the scriptures, not in a in a very loose way, but in a very deep, embedded sense, which I'm talking about and which I'm seeking for, will be what we need for the joints and parts work together properly. You may note in my talk that I did not give you uh, much answers. I much, pretty much talked about the problem that I see as I say it. The reason for that is because I don't have an answer to give. I present you more a problem, a, a problem that I see to which I'm seeking answer. And my thought today is to put together these three pieces. The idea of moral vision, the text of Ephesians, and the, the challenge of catechesis in the church, and see how the three of them come together. And, and as a last part, I'd like to leave you with a piece of scriptures. So if anything else that I, I said was helpful or blessed you anyway, I, I'd like at least this portion to be a word, not mine, but from the scriptures to you. And it says on chapter, Ephesians chapter 5, yeah, chapter 5, verse 8 on. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the fruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed to the light, it becomes visible. For anything that it becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look careful then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Thank you so much.